0: Christmas. Merry Christmas. How are we doing? Well, Morgan and I, this is our first Christmas as a family with this faith family, and we are just so excited uh, to celebrate with you. And so I just thought it would be a great thing for us to do in this moment before we sit down, before we get going. Yes, it's a family service. No, that's not Gamecock fans crying. That's just the, the children. It's just the children. Sorry, I had to do it on Christmas. Um, but, but Morgan, would you pray for me as we open up God's Word today? Let's pray, you guys. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are, God. God, we are so unworthy, God, but you are worthy of all the glory and the honor and the praise. God, we thank you that we get to come freely into this place and to worship you. God, we thank you that um, in this moment, God, that we can be reminded, God, that you sent your son for us. And God, that's something to praise and be thankful and grateful for tonight, God. Lord, we pray for Russ, God, as he, he comes to bring your word. God, I pray that you will fill him with your Holy Spirit, that he will step out of the way and that you would be front and center. God, may our hearts um, be open. God, may our ears be clear to hear. God, we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for what you're doing and what you're gonna c- continue to do. And we look forward to the new year, Jesus. And we love you in your name, amen. amen. You guys go ahead and take a seat. How many kids are excited that it's Christmas? We got any excited kids? I'm giving you permission to raise your hand and let me know. Who's excited about Christmas? Anybody? Okay. Got some excitement over there. We got four or five kids over here. Everybody else just not excited. Oh man, what an exciting time. My kids are excited that it's going to be Christmas. My daughter Macy said, I have to go into church. I said, yes, you do. And she said, oh man, you preach too long. There's nothing more truth-telling and nothing more humbling than what your kids say about you. So if I, I, I may be high cotton in my own eyes, but I am not high cotton in her eyes. Um, I, I'm so excited to talk through the Christmas story. We've been talking about this king uh, that was promised and prophesied to come. Thousands of years in advance, God called his shot and said that though the world was broken... And though the world had much difficulty going on in it, that God was not done with it. That in spite of all of our rebellion and all of our sin and all of our brokenness, God was going to send a son who would live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died. And as a result of it, make sons of men who were separated from the image they were created in God to become sons and daughters of God. And that is the hope and the message that we celebrate at Christmas. It's that after 400 years of waiting at the end of the Old Testament, Jesus burst into time and walked among us. Except instead of falling like we had fallen in sin and temptation, He overcame. And as a result of it, He offers salvation to whosoever will believe. And that is the joy and the celebration of the season that we get to talk about tonight. And here's why I love the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story, when you get to the nativity scene, is filled with a whole lot of messed up and dysfunctional people, which gives my family a lot of hope. I grew up, I grew up around Christmas with a very unique Christmas season. I had a highfalutin family from Simpsonville, which means they put their pinkies out when they drank their tea. It it means that we had a sit-down formal dinner with Christmas china, with more than one fork. And Yeah, and we would sit down at this crazy highfalutin Christmas, and it was fun because it was my grandmother's dream, and then we would go into a room filled with presents that was uh, way too small for all of us to fit in, and we would burst at the seams with joy as we ripped into everything, and then, late that night, we would go to Moonville, South Carolina, oh yeah, right the Possum Kingdom and Sugar Tit, And, and we would... We would go to Moonville, South Carolina to Grandma's house. And at Grandma's house, there was nothing formal about it. There was lunch sandwich meat from Ingalls on the table. There was a prayer that was prayed. And if you didn't reach at Amen end to get what you wanted, there was a good chance you was going to go hungry at Grandma's house, to which we would then have a game of dirty Santa where sometimes the cops probably should have been called. Because that's the side of family I was from. And my Uncle Randy, I love my Uncle Randy. He came off a cruise ship at the ripe old age of 40. And he would give us cigar boxes at Christmas. Not with cigars in it. We're we're not from West Pelzer. We're from Moonville. Uh, (laughs) He would give us empty cigar boxes that he had filled with what I think he thought was the 4th of July celebration necessities. Because we would get fireworks. And we would end the night, not around fine China, but throwing fireworks at each other and getting in trouble. And that was Christmas for the dysfunctional folks down on Painter Road. A lot of you have a lot of different traditions and you got family members that you think belong in the nativity or other family members that don't belong in the nativity. But the good news is the nativity is filled with a lot of dysfunctional people that need that little baby to come and live his life in the way that he would live it and ultimately die a death that would atone for them in the way that he died and did die for them so that they could have salvation. I mean at the nativity you got dysfunctional people like shepherds. Shepherds who... Uh, were in the fields of Bethlehem. The shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem were the kind of people uh, that day in and day out watched over the flocks that were sent to the temple. So they're some of the first people that hear the announcement that the Messiah has come because they are some of the first people who would have seen day in and day out the cost of sin, their sin, and the entire nation of Israel's sin as they sent their sheep away to be sacrificed at at the temple, symbolizing what Jesus would ultimately come and do. But shepherds were not reputable people. They were a lot like my Moonville family. They were the kind of people that if you were to go into court and say that you had witnessed a crime and they were your witness, they would not be admitted in court as a viable witness because it was believed that they were not trustworthy. Yet the announcement of the coming of the Messiah starts with some shepherds in the backwoods of Bethlehem. Several weeks and months later, in a, after the stall had been cleaned and Mary and Joseph settled into life in Bethlehem, some uh, magi came from probably a place called Babylon, and that's the story we're going to look at tonight. How many of you met a normal magician? Let's just be honest. If you're a magician and you're here, like like you're a little weird, and we love you and we're grateful that you're here, but 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 most people don't look at Magi and go, "Oh yeah, they're normal, just normal neighborly people." No, you pull rabbits out of things, and it's it's a different thing. And, and these Magi, they they spent their lives studying the stars. And they saw something change on the first night when Jesus was born. And they began an exhaustive and long journey to come and worship the Messiah that had come, even though they weren't from a Jewish background, but from a Gentile background. And I want to read this story to you really quick because I want you to know that tonight... Everybody is welcome at the nativity. Everyone can come. Everyone has a place in Jesus' family. And he invites you and I, whether we're young or we're old, whether we're in the eyes of society, high-functioning or low-functioning, whether we're uh, friends in high places or, as the prophet Garth Brooks will say, friends in low places, you have a place at the nativity tonight. Matthew chapter 2, look at this story with me as we celebrate this Christmas season. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem. In Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest. And gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. This is an incredible Christmas story. We get some unique characters, two kings that we know of that are in this story. One king's a guy named Herod. Now, Herod is not a politically correct character in the sense that he's not family friendly. He was absolutely paranoid all the time. He had several of his sons put to death. He had half of the Sanhedrin put to death whenever he came into his kingship. He had 300 court officers killed. He basically was the queen of roses in Alice in Wonderland. Off with their heads, over and over again, consistently. That was King Herod. Uh, As he got ready to die, he knew there would be rejoicing in the streets that he had died. So he called all of the notable and respected men in the community to be assembled in the hippodrome, the theater, and he had them killed as soon as he died so that people would mourn instead of rejoice in his departure. Emperor Augustus, who had called for the census, said this about Herod. He said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Being Jewish, he wouldn't eat his pig and have it put to death. And if you were a son, he had three of them put to death during his tenure as king. Now, the way that Herod was king is he had gotten into cahoots with Rome. And if you were a Jewish person, you hated Rome because they taxed and took from your own table. They made your life more difficult. And so on top of being taxed by Rome, you were also taxed by Herod, who would come behind them and take extra taxes to prop up and build up his own kingdom. So he was positioned in power by Rome, and he ruled by their force, their fear, and their intimidation over the people of Israel. To put it blunt, he was an extra tax and an extra weight on the back of his people, and he desired to be their king. Now, let me be clear. Today, many of you, you live wanting to get as far away from Jesus as possible. His lordship, his leadership, the announcement of him being a king not necessarily good news to you because you feel like he's a restrictive king. And in your mind, you'll find freedom under the leadership of someone else, whether it's a government or yourself. But at the end of the day, the leadership in life, apart from Jesus, always ends up like life under Herod. It always ends up over-promising and under-delivering. It always ends up with you being in a place of want and need. And so, in the middle of this brokenness and all of this pain, Jesus steps in. But he doesn't step in in grandeur and parades in Jerusalem. He steps in in the backwoods of a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem likely had 300 people total in the entire town the night Jesus was born into it. I mean, he increased their entire population by like 0.3% in one single birth. They were so small, they were so small that they didn't have enough men to be drafted into the army. But in this small town, a lot of big stuff had been happening. Ruth met Boaz in Bethlehem. It's rumored that Rachel, uh, uh, Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, was buried in Bethlehem. And there was this king that was after God's own heart that had come several hundreds of years prior in this little town of Bethlehem. And on this little town, on this unheralded night, Emmanuel came. Not the God who is up in the sky and away from us, but the God who is near to us, the God who knows us, the God who cares for us, the God who loves us. You see, he's the king that verse 6 in chapter 2 says would be a shepherd of God's people. He would be close to the sheep. He would smell like sheep. He would walk amongst the sheep. He would lead the sheep through the valley as we talked about earlier this year because he was the good shepherd who leads us in the valley of the shadow of death, who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, who anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows in his presence. This is the Jesus that they had needed that they hadn't even known to look for and for him to come. This was the Jesus that was coming and the king that was coming that would be the lamb that will lay down his life for his sheep. He's Jehovah Jireh, the king that provides rather than takes from his people. You see, tonight, Jesus doesn't need anything from you, but he offers everything to you. He's Jehovah Rapha, the king who heals and restores rather than the king who harms. You see, it's not on your back that he has to climb to the throne. His throne is established with or without your praise, with or without your worship, and it will continue with or without you bowing your knee before him. However, we would encourage you to bow your knee now. Because he's a king that is worthy of your life and a king that is worthy of your praise. Which explains why Bethlehem would be the setting. 750 years before it ever happened, it was prophesied. Which is one of the reasons I believe in the Bible. And I believe in the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because we have all of this prophecy that points to the time and the place and how Jesus would be born. And 750 years before it ever happened, in the book Micah, it says this. Micah chapter 5. Uh, Verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem of of Apathra, which means fruitful, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and the ancient of days. So tonight, we are celebrating that Jesus has come on a silent night, maybe a little bit more silent than this one, (laughs) in a little town of not much significance named Bethlehem, unheralded and unnoticed by most in the entire world. But like then, there were varied responses to the announcement of this coming king. And tonight, you and I are invited to give response as we await the second coming of this same king. Look at this text in this story, three magi, three Wizards, if you will, come from Babylon. And they, they come looking for where this king is. And in verse one, uh, verse 2, look at what it says. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed at the announcement. Of this, And so was all of the rest of Israel. You see, for some people, the announcement of Jesus being king is an inconvenient disturbance. It brings out a response of, hate, perhaps the worst person you could ask about where the king of the Jews is, and by king of the Jews here, we mean not you, the real king, is a guy that's as paranoid as Herod. You see, this is the title that would hang above the cross 33 years later when he was crucified for our sins, king of the Jews. It's the title that got him killed, and it's the title that causes a disturbance on the very first night of his birth. Now, I've learned something about myself. I have a tendency of being a jealous person. I know that none of you are jealous. You've never been jealous in your entire life. But there have been times where I have coveted. I've looked at my neighbor's stuff and thought, man, that must be nice. I've heard them complain about things that I thought, man, I would love to be able to complain about that at some point in my life. And here's what I've understood being around this world a little bit. There are a lot of people who are a lot better at a lot of things than I'm at. I know this is a big revelatory moment for you to hear someone be dishonest before you. But I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of people that do it a lot better than me. And I can exaggerate about how good I once was, was. But at the end of the day, I know that there are a lot of people that are just more naturally gifted and have been blessed with a whole lot of things that are a lot different from me. When you stand in the presence of someone that's better than you, you have one or two choices. You can either respond to them, and I do this a lot, you can respond to them with humility or hate. And for Herod, when he's confronted with the reality that there is a new king in town, the king that has been prophesied in the Old Testament, that has been promised that was going to come, he has a opportunity to respond. He could humble himself before this new king. He could bend his own knee, recognizing his need of the salvation that this new king could bring a paranoid person like him. Or he could hate on this king, and in that hate, rise up and seek to snuff out this promised one that's been foretold of in the Old Testament. For you and I, in the same way, in the announcement of the coming of Jesus, you can respond with humility or hate. Now, I want you to imagine how power hungry you have to be, how controlling of a person you have to be to know that the Bible has called in 750 years of history in advance that Jesus would come. And in your mind, you think I can rise up and snuff it out. I can avoid his judgment. I can avoid his coming. For many of us, it's the same kind of game that we play, though. We live our lives completely turned off to the idea of surrendering to this king, believing that we can, in and of ourselves, be our own God and avoid his coming judgment. In Psalm chapter 2, it talks about this silly idea. And it says in verse 1, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with their feudal plans? The kings of earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery... To God, <clears throat> listen, you can be enslaved to your sin or you can be enslaved to the God who freed you from sin. But you're going to serve somebody. You're going you're to be enslaved by something. The question is, is, are you enslaved to the king that breaks you free? Or are you enslaved to the sin and the life that will continue to overpromise and under See, for Herod, the announcement of Jesus' coming was not reason for worship. And it was not good news, but it was a disturbance to the life that he was determined to live on his own own behalf. So for some, tonight, the message of Christmas, the invitation to the nativity, is something that brings about disturbance. For others, it it brings about indifference. There's this group of religious leaders that are brought up in verses 4 and 6. Herod goes to them and says, have you heard about this king? They have spent their entire lives studying the Old Testament. The religious leaders would have had Exodus, Genesis, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. They likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. Day and night, they would study the scrolls. And for the first time in their history... They are reading and being asked about an event that was prophesied in the scrolls that's actually happening in front of them. And they don't even go. They don't go to see for themselves. They stay in their indifference, not moving at all. So, for the religious leaders, it was indifference, even though they knew the prophecy about the announcement of Jesus. The reasons for why could vary. It could have been time. It's been over 400 years since the promise of the Messiah, it could have been expectation. They were more focused on keeping the religious system than actually expecting any real power or life change. Maybe it's that they had rendered themselves to a state where they acknowledged in their mental assent the power of God in word, but they denied him in, in submission and expectation in the actual deeds of their life. This is for many of us the reality where we are. I call it practical atheism. It's where in word we state one belief, but in practice we live as if it's not one worth the bending of our knee, and the application of our life. But there's a third group that responds to the announcement of Jesus. It's the Magi, these astronomers from Babylon. And months later, they come in, and they have quite the different response. If you look at it in verse 7 with me, it says this, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, learned when the star had first appeared, and told them, Go to Bethlehem, search, search, carefully for this child. And when you find him, come back and tell them so that I can go and worship him too. We know that that's not what Herod was up to. Verse 9, he says this, after the interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When uh, When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And look at what happens. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened the treasure chest and gave him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, really brief. You ready? Here it goes. Every one of us tonight have been living this entire year in worship to something. The question is not, did you worship this year? The question is, what did you worship this year? For some of you, you worshipped your job. For some of you, you worshipped a promotion. For some of you, you, you worship uh, a new way of living, a new you, a new version of you that you wanted to be. I don't know what the object of your worship is, but I know that you and I, whether we like it or not, want to, the news to be true or not, have been created to worship and can't help ourselves but to worship. It's why we shout in exuberance when our little kid catches a touchdown or hits a home run over a fence. We were created to express and to worship. And for many of us, we've not worshipped the king that's come, that will come again as king. But instead, we've worshipped creation. And the Bible called this. It said that for many of us, we would get so captivated with what we've already seen in creation that we would worship it over the creator behind it. And as a result, we would miss out on what we were created for. We would worship something, frankly, that absolutely couldn't deliver. But the Magi come, and when they see the child, their immediate response is joy and worship. And here's what I want you to know. We worship what matters most to us with what is valuable. I said it this way. We use what is valuable to worship what we value most. And right now tonight, with your time and with your attention and with all of your passion, there is something on this earth whether it's the creator or what was created by the creator on it, that you're taking what's valuable, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and you are using it extravagantly, To worship what you value most. My question to you is, have you come to understand the most valuable thing that has ever been given? And that is Jesus, who is the son that came as a son of God to live amongst the sons of men so that sons of men could become sons of God. That is what Jesus did for you. Now they offered gold. Why? Because you can't serve both God and money. Why? Because gold speaks to the kingship of Jesus. They offered him frankincense. Why? Because it points to his priestly office as our high priest who would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. What They offered him myrrh. Why? Because myrrh was a burial spice that points to the death that Jesus would die. Theologian William Barclay said it this way, Even at the cradle, the gifts foretold that Jesus was the true king, the perfect high priest, and the supreme savior of the world. Now, I say all this to you and all of the noise and all of the fun because I want you to hear something. We look back on that first night. We look back on that first night. But that's not the last first that's to come. There's another first night coming. When the trumpet blows and the, scroll is, and the skies roll back like a scroll and Jesus steps in to de- declare what's his as, his as king of kings and lord of lords forever. And the book of Revelation points to it. It gives us a warning because Jesus has offered grace to whosoever. And in that warning, it promises there's a day coming where he's coming back. And he says this, Revelation chapter 22, look, I am coming soon. When is Jesus coming? Soon. When's he coming? Soon. It was 400 years from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. We've been 2,000 years waiting. I would submit to you the answer to when Jesus is coming is still soon. And when he comes, he's bringing his reward with him to repay all people according to their deeds. He says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That means they receive the blood of Jesus as a payment for their sin. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life, eternal life that God will give them. And then in verse 17, The spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone. And I love the word anyone because in Greek, it means anyone. In Hebrew, it means anyone. It means shepherds, and it means wizards, and it means magicians, and it means family from Moonville, and it means city folk from Simpsonville. Like, I love the word anyone, because Jesus seems to be consumed with the fact that his death is enough for anyone to be right, for anyone to be welcomed into the family, for anyone to come and find hope. And I don't know who you are, where you've been, and what the details are. I don't know if you're a shepherd whose word isn't admissible in court, but anyone can be an anyone. And that's the beauty of the Christmas message. Let anyone who hears this, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Maybe you've lived your life trying to be your own God. You've done this for years now, going, I'm the difficult one to catch. You know that's not a a, a sign to be proud of. Like, you don't want to be found as, I'm the difficult family member that's difficult to be, like, like, that's not, like, we're not impressed. You can come. The difficult and the easy can come. The, The thirsty... And those who have found that the world can't fulfill them, come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Look, we don't do Christmas services so that we can get dressed up and everyone can obligatorily show up and, and be here. We do Christmas services because it gives us an opportunity to humbly plead with you that the gospel is enough for you to be forgiven, that the gospel is enough for you to come home, and so I, I know I, I know it's a kid's service. I know it's a little bit different. And you caught like 30% of what I was saying in between stuff. And you're like, oh, thank God it ain't mine. Praise God. Or if it was, you're just like, oh, God, my kid's the worst. No, my kids are bad too. But, my, my, my. but, but maybe, maybe in all of the distraction of this not so silent night, m- maybe the whole point of what God was doing was bringing you into a space in a season to hear a message you've heard that's so familiar so that he could knock on the door of your heart one more time and go, hey, Look, I'm coming again, and I want you to be in my family. I want you to be with me forever. And if you, in the hearing of all this chaos, have gone, that's me. Like, I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to hide anymore. Like, I, 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 apparently anyone can come. So here I am. If that's you, then I want to invite you right in your seat, right here, right now, to give your life to Jesus, to surrender your life to him. No, no better decision, no better gift you could give than that this Christmas season. So if you've never given your life to Christ, or maybe you're sitting here going, man, I'm, I'm not a believer. I, I just know I'm not, and i I, I got to earn it. I've got to be better. I've not been good this year. Jesus ain't Santa. He don't operate with naughty lists and bad lists. It's in the blood and washed in the blood or don't have the blood. And it, he offers the blood to anyone that's you, I want to invite you to bow your head with me and pray this prayer sincerely from your heart. It says in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then he is faithful and just to forgive. So we're going to confess with our mouth that he is Lord, that his sacrifice was enough, that his blood was enough, and that it's enough for you to be made right before God. And if you believe that, and you confess that, then the scriptures have a promise tied to it that he will give you salvation if you ask. So will you ask? Pray this with me. Jesus, I need you to forgive me for what I've done. I need you to deliver me from the person that I've been. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But God, I need your salvation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead to forgive me. So be my Lord and be my leader in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, would everyone keep their head bowed and eyes closed? I know we want to peek in church. But if you prayed that prayer, would you just let me know, hey, pastor, today... I decided to take that step from death to life and give my life to Jesus and just throw your hand up in the air and let me know. Would you let me know? Praise God. Awesome. Awesome. Amen. 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 Well, hey, here's the cool thing. We don't come bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. Instead, until Jesus comes back, we've been invited to a table. And perhaps the greatest way that we remember this Messiah, this Savior is we come to his table recognizing what he did for us. That, that it's because of his sacrifice that we have this hope, this gospel, this new life. And so I want to invite you, if you can stand, to stand to your feet with us and take the communion elements that you received. Did everyone get it? If anyone needs communion, we would invite you to take that with us. You don't have to be a church member to take communion. And if you need communion, if you just wave your hand around like a little bit of a crazy person, like you from Moonville, we will bring you some communion. Anybody? I want everyone that has or wants to take this to be able to do it. Anyone need communion? Around 33 years after that first night, there was the last night. And in Matthew chapter 26, it records this last supper where Jesus sat down with a group of disciples that would all betray Him. None of them were going to perform well in this season of trial. And as He sat down to take this last supper, this Passover meal with them, He took the bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, broken for you. Tonight we celebrate and we remember the broken body of Christ for our sins, the body of Christ. And after he took the bread, he lifted the cup. Here we go. And he said, this is the blood of my covenant. The old covenant was about what you had done and how you had fallen short. But this new covenant was about what had been done for you that fulfilled the law. He told them, take, drink in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. So Jesus, there is nothing else to say but thank you. Thank you for the humble beginning, for the invitation to a whole bunch of sorted and different and in need type people to the manger. Thank you for the life you live. Thank you, Jesus, for the death you died. Thank you for the fact that your grace is greater than any amount of sin in this room. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for new beginnings. Thank you for new life. Thank you for loving us at our worst. For always being at your best. God, you're worthy. You're worthy of all of our gratitude. In just a second, we're going to light up your candles. You want to help your little ones so that we don't burn everyone down. But we want to express our gratitude by candlelight. And so as they come and light the candles, if... You're passing the light. I'm going to really quick give you some candle etiquette. You ready? You're going to hold the candle if you're lit up already, and the person that is not lit is going to put their candle into your already lit candle. That way you don't pour hot wax on them or you. Okay? Uh, At the end, when we're done singing this uh, old Christmas carol that will come at the end, we uh, wish you a Merry Christmas and you blow your candle out and have the most incredible Christmas season as a family. As we're doing this, I'm going to be down here at the altar, though, because we respond to the Word of God. And if you need prayer for anything, me and the prayer team would love to pray with you as we sing these songs in this Christmas season. What a good, loud night. Amen? Amen. Merry Christmas. I'm grateful for Him, and I'm grateful for you. Let's sing.